make us grateful. We just pray that you would come now and join with us this morning, that you would lift our hearts, you would lift our spirits, Father, and that we may do the same for you in exchange. Help us to lift your heart. Help us to lift your spirit. Help us, Father, to seek you out this morning, to listen to what you have to say, to find what it is you want for us as an individual, as a group. Help us, Father, to be a recipient of the messenger, or maybe a messenger ourselves. Maybe there's something we can share with a friend, with a family member. A message from you. And whatever it is you share with us this morning, Father, help us to be good, help us to be diligent, help us to be faithful and strong, to go forth today and this week and live out the truth that you have shared with us, the mission you have given us, the calling you have placed upon our lives. And above all else, Father, we pray in all we do,
That was a great moment. Almost gave me the giggles. Made my big key change transition. Played my intro. Hit it pretty good. I was feeling pretty good about it. And then went, oh, I don't have a microphone. Which, we could have made it here in the house, but those of you at home would have heard nothing. So uh, that was awesome. Thanks, Stephanie, for helping me out there and for quickly grasping what the, what the issue was. <laughs> we're so professional around here. All right, we're continuing in the book of Mark. So great to see those of you who could join us in-house today. And I know that that is a week-by-week thing for so many of you. But those of you who are able and have joined us in past weeks and have joined us this morning... Thankful for you, grateful for you, grateful for those of you who are at home uh, with us as well. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, continuing our walk through the book of Mark. Now, in a few weeks, we are going to detour, still in the book of Mark, but we're going to jump ahead in the timeline a bit as we approach uh, Resurrection Sunday, and so you'll be looking to that um, in preparation for that as well, I want to let you know about an event that we are partnering with Rabbit Creek Church. My great friend uh, Mark Goodman is the pastor there, and uh, Corey Pepitone, student minister, Joshua Travis, the worship pastor. Bowser, uh, he's uh, our neighbor. Uh, Sean back there, he's my next-door neighbor, and then Henry's the next next-door neighbor. Henry's the executive pastor at Rabbit Creek. Uh, working with those guys and some of their other folks and staff to uh, put together four Easter week, Passover week, from Maundy Thursday, which is uh, the day of the, the Last Supper, will be uh, hosted at Rabbit Creek for those who would like to attend in person, and it will be live streamed from there as well. Uh, a kind of silent Last Supper, where through the course of the evening, 45 minutes to an hour, we will, each of the elements of a Passover meal, we, we will build the table that would have been something like Jesus and the disciples would have experienced on that evening that they had the Last Supper together. And uh, we'll have different uh, folks. Uh, Pastor Jason's going to join me there and uh, some folks from Rabbit Creek. And we will go through each of the elements that, that occurred that night, many of the elements anyway, and talk about their significance and how they tie into and what they tell us about the story of that week and the, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we'll be talking about uh, foot washing, the vase, the bowl, um, the table itself, uh, the spices that are used in a traditional Passover meal, uh, the elements, the meat, the bread, the wine. And, uh, and it will culminate, really kind of stop, that evening will stop at the moment that Jesus calls to one of his disciples, those who've traveled with him this entire time, Judas, and charges him to go and do that which he intends to do, which we, of course, know is to betray Jesus a little bit later in the evening. And so then following that, Friday, Good Friday, will be hosted here uh, on our platform, and it will be a, a semi-theatrical production there, uh, where we pick up right at that moment when Judas uh, encounters Jesus there in the supper and they have this exchange that we find in the scriptures. And then we'll, we're going to kind of follow Judas's story over the, the rest of those events up until the time that uh, Jesus is taken to be crucified. That'll be here. And, uh, and then after that will be the invitation to come. One of our places, you can choose wherever you want to go, Rabbit Creek Church, Christ Community Church, Easter Sunday, to hear the rest of the story. All of those events lead to the greatest event in all of history since the birth of the Messiah, and that is the rebirth of the Messiah as he comes forth from the grave on that glorious resurrection morning, uh, guaranteeing for us that he can accomplish that which he promised, which was to give us life here on earth that is abundant and purposeful, as well as secure us for all of eternity to live with him and to reign with him and to enjoy his presence and to enjoy one another and to, to just live in the perfection that is the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that glorious? All secured in that sacrifice, death, 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So be looking forward to that. It's going to be a great time together. We're continuing to talk about, of course, safety measures and, and mitigation efforts and all those sorts of things. And uh, as things progress over the, over the next month or so, we'll continue to kind of really pay attention to those details and we'll communicate that to you. But I want you to plan to be part of that, whether it's online or here in person at Rabbit Creek in person. It'll be a great time. And I sure do love that church. Uh, past two... Uh, pastors, Mark Goodman now, Terry Hill before that, both have been fantastic friends to me, uh, and uh, sometimes in times when things weren't going so great, they were voices of encouragement and wisdom, and I appreciate that from them so much. So I'm excited to do this with them. So that brings us to Mark chapter 9, where we are today, and we're going to be kicking off just a couple, just two verses today. Two verses, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, and it does tie into what I was just talking about, Easter Sunday, Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, because what we find in Scripture is we find several different occasions where Jesus kind of preloads the disciples and at sometimes other people to understand that he is not an earthly king that he is not there to set up a government. He's not there to, to overthrow the Romans in a political sense or anyone else, that he is there to overthrow the domination, the mastery of sin in the lives of people, and that he intends not to be their political ruler, but their spiritual ruler, their spiritual king of kings. And so we see that uh, throughout the scriptures, and as we've discussed over the last several weeks, and I'll, I'll say again, those of you who've heard this, sorry to bore you, but we often have people who haven't been with us for a while or haven't been able to join us online. I will encourage you, go back on our podcast. You can go to uh, c3ak.com slash podcast, and you can find there links to iTunes. Uh, our hosting service is Podbean. If you've got some other uh, podcasting service that you use that accepts what they call an RSS file. There's a link to that. There's a link to our YouTube page, which has the video version of all of these. I encourage you to go back five or six weeks at least and pick up the trail that has led us to here, because all of these stories are building on one another, these encounters that Jesus has had with his disciples, um, intimate, specific conversations that he's had with his disciples some rebukes that he's given, insight that he's given, and uh, last week we talked about the incredible event where Jesus, James, and John, and Peter go up on Mount Hebron, probably, up into the mountains, and there the glory of God falls, and Jesus shines with his glory uh, that will be like the glory that he uh, is his, his actual being, his pure being, and gives us a foreshadowing of what our glorified selves will be like. And in that moment, Moses and Elijah literally arrive there with him. The, the veil between this world and the kingdom of heaven is parted, and Moses and Elijah step through and stand there with Jesus on that mountain. And that is what has happened right before this. And so we get to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And it says that they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, let's, let's take just a couple of things there. And we're, we're not going to spend a long time today because what I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you some other places where Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection and that uh, we find harmony among the Gospels, but also that he talked about it in other places. And then sort of kind of tie that around at the end as to why this is important. So uh, I have several other passages, and, and I don't normally do this. I don't normally build a message with many passages of Scripture because usually uh, when we have a tendency to do that, it's because we have a topic 
and we've gone out and we've cherry-picked verses to support our idea, as opposed to doing what we try to do here most often, which is to look at the text and say, what does the text tell us, as opposed to, here's what I think, now let me make the text tell you that same thing. Even though I have a ton of passages today, not a ton, but several passages today that we're going to direct to, it's not that approach. You're going to see that they're all literally saying the same thing. And I want to show you the harmony of the Gospels, and I want to show you that Jesus was trying to prepare people. And we see a glimpse of that right in the beginning of this. I want you to go back and look with me, verse 30. They went on from there, this place that they had been. They've come down from the mountain. A a number of other things have transpired. Uh, Right after the transfiguration, Jesus encounters a boy who's possessed by a spirit, and there's this uh, kind of cataclysmic event that happens, and Jesus talks to the disciples about why they weren't able. In fact, it, it's, one of my, it's one of my favorite passages, but we've, we've bypassed it here because we wanted to move along to some other things. But, you know, we talked last week about Jesus is there on the mount with Elijah and Moses show up, and it, it's so moving that, that Peter wants to build altars, wants to build tents there for Jesus and Moses and Elijah to stay in. And, and he says, let's just stay here and worship. This is incredible. And it's, it's that literal picture of the mountaintop experience. But the voice of God comes through and says, uh, don't get too enamored, based, uh, paraphrasing, don't get too enamored, don't get too excited about Moses and Elijah because Jesus, Jesus is the one to be excited about. He is my son. Do everything that he tells you to do. And the very next thing that Jesus tells them to do is we can't build shelters here. And then obviously we're going to go down the mountain because that's what they do. While they're on the mountain, having this incredible experience, Down in the valley, people have known that Jesus was going to be around and someone has brought their son who has this affliction and the disciples have been trying to cast out the spirit and they can't. And it's another one of those places where Jesus, in the text, the implication is that Jesus comes down, he sees what's happening and he he sighs. He's got that heavy sigh. You guys, like, seriously? And that's why I say if you go back, if you follow this in context and you go back over the last several weeks of what we've been talking about, you see the miracles that have occurred, the things that Jesus has said, the way he's revealed himself, the voice of God coming from heaven, and still, like us many times, the disciples still don't quite get it. And so then uh, they have this discussion uh, about what's wrong here, and Jesus is able to cast out this spirit, and then he tells them that uh, part of their issue is that they... They don't spend enough time fasting and praying and in the Word to be filled with the Spirit of God, to have the power over that kind of a spirit. And so immediately after that happens, it says, they went on from there, passed through Galilee, and he, that's Jesus, did not want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to know that they were passing through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know that they were traveling through there. And we might ask the question why, but it's answered for us right here. You see, Jesus knows that the time is short. The time is near that he is going to be crucified. Now, he knows that he's going to be resurrected. And I'm pretty sure he also knows that he is not after he's going to be resurrected. He he knows that he's not going to be here on this earth, that he is going to ascend to his rightful place on his throne in heaven right there at the right hand of God the Father. And so he knows what's coming, and so kind of like we might do sometimes when we know that we're about to take an extended trip or maybe you know we're moving to another place or uh, events are going to transpire, we, we can see something coming down the, the tracks, and so we take our loved ones, we gather our loved ones near, and we have some important conversations with them. Because we know that in a little while, things are going to be chaotic, things are going to be out of hand, or physical distance is going to make it more difficult to have those kinds of intimate conversations and interactions. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus gathers his disciples to himself. He doesn't want to be overtaken by the crowds that have followed them and and pushed in on them everywhere that they've gone before. And so they keep it on the down low that they're doing this because 
he was teaching his disciples. And this is what he said to them. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. What a, what a difficult conversation to have. What a difficult conversation to hear. In fact, we see at the end of this that after Jesus says this, and then he tells him, he says, now when he's killed, and he's talking about himself, when he's killed after three days, he will rise. Now, again, we, we, have, we have the advantage, we have the, we have the lovely advantage of hindsight. We've read the whole story, and we know how this turns out. But I want you to put yourself in the position, in the place of the disciples in that moment. And even if we try to do that, we still have a tendency to go, well, I mean, there's like three or four people that they've seen Jesus raised from the dead, including the most dramatic, Lazarus, who's been dead for days. And yet, Jesus calls him forth. So we look at him, we go, well, of course he is. He's, of course he's going to rise in three days. And even if we try to remove ourselves ob objectively and try to, try to be in the disciples' shoes, we, we still have that, that going around in the back of our heads that if we were there and we'd seen the miracles that we'd know exactly what he's talking about. But I would suggest to you that just as the text tells us about the disciples, that you and I probably would not have been much different than they were in that moment. And what it says is, Jesus tells them, I'm going to be delivered. And notice he uses the phrase, son of man. It's used often to refer to Jesus throughout the scriptures. And it is a designation of him as the Messiah. So he's speaking in a very detailed and intentional way about who he is, not just as a person, but as this figure that they would understand has this incredible importance to be the Messiah. And so the very first thing that they don't understand is how does the Messiah that we believe is going to come, how is the Messiah given over to the hands of men and killed. How does that work? I mean, couldn't he? He's the Messiah. Like, he could stop that, right? And they think probably that he should, because as we talked about in the past few weeks with Peter and, and even last week with James and John about their earthly view of things, they still think that, that Jesus' mission is about things that are happening on the earth and in their community specifically. They, they still don't understand that his, his mission is much larger, that it's about all of humanity. In fact, it's not even all about humanity. It's about all of creation. The good news is not just for humans. The good news is for all creation to be redeemed. And so the, right off the bat, the first thing he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of Men, and he's very specific to say that, of, of humans, people. The Messiah is going to be delivered in the hands of humans, and they're going to kill him. And that must have been very shocking. And then he follows it up with, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. I don't know if Jesus' implication there or if his intent there was to give comfort because he just said, some guys are going to take me away and they're going to kill me. But don't worry. I'll be back. <laughs> right? And again, because we see it with 2020 vision, hindsight, we're like, cool, that's awesome. Isn't that exciting? But, but think about that moment all of the confusion that must be racing around in the minds of the disciples because here's the Messiah, he's, he's God in the flesh, and somehow people are going to kill him, but three days later he's going to rise again. What, what is this all about? And that's exactly what it says, that they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now we're going to look at some other passages. Um, we're going to buzz through these pretty quickly, but you're going to see the same underlying theme 
And then I'm going to follow it up with one final passage of Scripture to kind of give us some encouragement in this. So, Luke chapter 13, verse 33. Did we have that one, Sean? I don't know if my notes were very good. Okay, hang out right there for just a second. So, Luke chapter 13, verse 33, he says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, this is, this is before they arrive in Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus is preloading them that where this is going to happen is going to be in Jerusalem because, they, because he says a prophet cannot die away from Jerusalem. So he's giving them a, a little bit more information about exactly where and when this is going to happen because they know that coming up pretty soon is the feast of the Passover and they know that they are going to go to Jerusalem to celebrate that. And so now they can have in their minds some sort of a time frame of when this is going to occur. And he's actually pretty specific. He says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for a prophet cannot be killed, cannot perish away from Jerusalem. All right, so then Luke chapter 9, verse 43 and 45. And they were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now this puts a little bit of a different spin on it, doesn't it? From Luke's perspective, hearing the stories that he had heard, that it wasn't just that they were confused, but that maybe it wasn't their time to understand. That maybe, and Jesus alludes to this in some other places where he says, listen, I'm telling you this right now, but it's not gonna make sense until later. I think sometimes that's, a, that's God's way of saying, I'm gonna give you some information, I'm gonna give you some insight, but I don't want you to spend too much time on it yet, but when the time comes, you're gonna know why this is important. You're gonna know why this matters. Now, this is the second time it says that they were afraid of asking him any questions about this. Now, I don't think that's because Jesus was a harsh teacher. He never seemed to be unwilling to give his insight. He never seemed to be unwilling to teach them. So what were they afraid of? Why were they afraid? Maybe kind of like we are sometimes when we encounter things in our lives, we just don't really, we don't really want to know the answer. We're not sure we really want to know the fullness of what God is revealing to us right now. And we find in these, these kind of, these back and forth here with Jesus, even in this time, and, and we can see it shadowed in other times, that God understands that as, about us and that he's gracious to reveal to us in his time because he knows what's best for us. Now we can go on to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, 21. And this is pretty much the parallel story right here. Same events have occurred that we just talked about. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we see right there, in fact, Jason talked about this a few weeks ago. We get the implication here, and I want you to see these because we have these, these little verses, you know, Mark chapter 9, it's just two verses. Jesus was teaching them, 
and he didn't want anybody else to bother them because he was teaching them about the time that he would be taken, and he told them that he would be taken into the hands of men, and he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise. The implication we get here is that Jesus is talking about this a lot. It isn't just a, it, it a throw-off conversation as they're walking down the road. Jesus has dedicated time to this because he wants his disciples to be prepared for something they cannot possibly be prepared for. And we see it jump up here in Peter, who's made this great confession about who Jesus is. Peter has had insights like nobody else has had. Peter's the guy who jumped out in the, on the surface of the water and walked on water with Jesus Christ in the midst of a storm. I mean, his faith is huge, his understanding. Jesus even said, God has given you an understanding, Peter, that, that has come from the Spirit of God, not from your earthly eyes and understanding. Peter is really tuned in and yet still here at this late moment, right before Jesus is indeed taken into the hands of men and killed, he still rebels against what God is saying. He says, no, surely this can't happen. This will never happen to you. And if, if you're familiar with the story, we even find in one of the accounts, when, when we get down, the rubber meets the road, we're at the moment, and G Judas comes to the garden and betrays Jesus with a brotherly kiss, and the guards begin to take him, what does Peter do in one of the accounts? Yeah, he leaps up and draws his sword and takes a swipe at a poor guy named Malchus and chops off his ear. Even though, for it would appear an extended period of time, Jesus has intently taught them of what is supposed to happen. Matthew chapter 17, just a little while later, same book. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Mark chapter 8, just a little bit before this. In fact, Matthew chapter 17 that I just read parallels to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 8 that I'm about to read parallels back to Matthew chapter 16, the one where Peter jumped up and said, surely this is not what's going to happen. So you see that here towards the end, Jesus is, is hitting this topic repeatedly. Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now remember when we read in Mark chapter 9, it said that he was traveling through Galilee with his disciples. He didn't want anyone to know, and he was teaching them these things. And then we, I, I hope you understand with me now as we look at all of these passages that are around the same time from the different accounts, what we see is that Jesus was spending an intense amount of time trying to get his followers, his closest friends, to understand, at least in hindsight, once these transpired, the gravity of what was about to occur. I don't, I don't think there would be any way, if we were in this same position, that we would fully grasp it as he told it to us. It would be something we would only begin to understand after the fact, when we saw all of the things that he said come to pass. And in fact, we see this. We see this in the story, again, of Peter and John, who, after Jesus is crucified and he's laid in the tomb, he rises again. The women are the first to go because they go intending to anoint the body of Jesus and they find the tomb empty. And where is Peter? He's back home. Back, he and some of the other boys have, have taken back up fishing not too much later. So even in hindsight, they still didn't fully get it until they encountered the risen Christ for themselves.
John chapter 13. I remember I said that he was going to be going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is it right here. John 13, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The reason that's important, that last phrase, the disciples remembered that, is because that was a prophecy about who the Messiah was. And so still, even right here at this last moment, in just a number of hours, they're going to gather for the Last Supper and the events of, of resurrection, crucifixion, and resurrection weekend. The clock is going to start on that. And it's going to march on inexorably. It, it, it will not be derailed. And all of those events will unfold. The, the betrayal of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus, the, the abusing of Jesus, the killing of Jesus, the mourning, the grieving, the weeping of those who love him, because even then still they don't understand. All of, all of their ideals have been exploded of what they thought this was going to be. And yet even here, Jesus in his actions fulfills a prophecy and God in his graciousness adds one more thing that they will be able to look back on and go, oh, hey, you guys remember that day in the temple when, when Jesus like, whoo, <laughs> whoa, he like, like lost it for a little bit and threw everybody out and, and was turning the tables over? He said, That's the prophecy, remember? That's him. The Messiah would have a zeal for the house of the Lord that would consume him. That was Jesus. And so then in verse 18, so the Jews said to him, and here when it's talking about the Jews, it's talking about the religious leaders in the temple. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us, show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they're standing in a physical building like this, a synagogue, a temple. And they think that he's referring to the stones that are around them. When they said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What they were asking is, what right do you have to do this? It's kind of that same thing we talked about several weeks ago when they, they sort of asked Jesus to be their trickster. Hey, Jesus, do another trick for us. Perform another miracle. And Jesus said, I'm not giving any more miracles to your eyes because you don't believe me anyway. You didn't believe the prophets. You don't believe me. Forget about it. It's kind of the same thing here. He's in there. He's throwing the tables over. He's running people out. He's saying, don't turn my father's house into a den of iniquity, one of the translations says a house of sin, a place of sin. And they said, what right do you have to do that? And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they went, that's crazy. And they look around because all they can focus on is the physical. All they can focus on is the things that man can do and they're not thinking in a spiritual way. And they say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But John, now remember this is the disciple, John. See, John now has hindsight 2020. And so he tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had spoken and said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, that's a lot of ground to travel, a lot, a lot of Scripture to cover, and, and much of it says the same things. And, and so we kind of arrive to the place where we say, what's the point? 
I think it's this last verse is the point. Because it's the same thing that God offers to us so often today. Now, as I said, we have a, a lot of insight and information because, because we're living way past this history, right? And we have the Bible that we can read and we can understand the events. But I don't know about you, but in my life I experience, I read the Bible, I pray, I get counsel from my wife, from my friends, from other uh, believers, and sometimes they speak into my life about things, and in that moment I may not understand it. But as time goes by and as events transpire, maybe perhaps God has used one of them to say something to me or to, to pray with me about something. He's used his word to speak to my heart about something that I haven't yet arrived at, but it will come to its fruitfulness in time. And verse 22 gives us an idea of that. Because here's John speaking those beautiful words that when they remembered what Jesus had said, then in that moment when they remembered it, it became something to them that had meaning. It became to them something that was truthful. It became to them something that was profound. I think God still operates this way in our lives. Often. We have our prayer card, you know, that we encourage you to do. When we were here fully in person, we had a prayer tree and we'd hang those up. Encourage you folks to take advantage of that online. Um, prayer at c3ak.com. We uh, talk about that in the announcement bumper that runs at the beginning of the, the service. That goes to our prayer team and we've been receiving prayer requests there. Encourage you to keep doing that. Pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, pastor at c3ak.com. Those emails come to Pastor Jason and I, and he and I pray over those. I, I know we don't, we don't necessarily always talk about them because we're not necessarily trying to bounce things off of each other, but I guarantee you that when he and I receive those that come to just us, he and I both pray for you. We lift our voices in accord with you in bringing that before the Lord. And we encourage that because through that, through that avenue of prayer, we have the opportunity sometimes maybe to write back to someone or then we have a conversation later about what we've been praying about. And so often we will find in those conversations, people will say, you know, I couldn't see what God was doing, but then, you know, you shared a passage of Scripture with me, and, and I went and read that, and then a little while later, these, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and then, and then it made sense, and I knew what God wanted me to do, or I knew what God was trying to tell me, or, uh, you know, you gave me a little bit of, of encouragement, and it just, God used that to just land in the right way, or you just sat with me in my grief. And ultimately what I needed to know was that I wasn't alone and I couldn't see that. But now, looking back, I can see how God used you to work that way. I think he still operates in much this way that he did with his disciples with us today. We have a lot more information and data at our hands. But I just know from my own personal walk that and 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 if if you don't know i'm a i'm a church baby like in the womb i was at church every sunday probably at that time twice on sunday and once on wednesday and i grew up that way my whole life and so by the time i was in uh, high school especially with the way that our church was structured, man, I knew my Bible. I knew my Bible. But I have found now as I knock on the door of 54, there's still a lot that I'm getting to know about the Bible. There's still a lot that I'm getting to know 
about what God has been trying to teach me and tell me and the way that he's been trying to form me. And I don't think it's a failure on my part. Sometimes it is, but for the most part, I don't think it's a failure. And if you find yourself still growing, still learning, still something that God dropped on you 10 years ago, five years ago, three weeks ago, suddenly becomes real and you go, oh, I was so stupid. I, I'm, I'm gonna encourage you to get rid of that thought. Because God knows when we need to understand what he's given to us. And he doesn't always give to us what we can understand in the moment. But he gives it to us because he knows what is going to transpire down the road. And that when the time comes, an encouragement that he's given you, a teaching that he's given you, an insight that he's given you, a, a correction that he's given you is going to come to its fruition. It's going to bear fruit in the moment that you need it because he planted it in you before. And I hope that gives you comfort. I think we live in a society in a world often self-inflicted where we are so consumed with getting everything right and about being right about everything that we're so consumed with some of us making sure that everyone else is getting it right. And I just wonder if life isn't so much about that. Because, can we be honest with one another? Are, are any of us getting it all right? And if we're not getting it all right, does that make us continuous failures? In a worldly sense, I think that's the, that's the conclusion we arrive at. And it's one of the reasons why we're so hard on other people and other people are hard on us. And sometimes we're so hard on ourselves because we're just, we're so consumed with this, somehow I have to be perfect as opposed to I'm being made perfect. And why am I being made perfect? Because I'm imperfect right now. So he is making me. And I just want to share with you one last passage of Scripture. It's in Romans chapter eight, 5, I think. <laughs> I had my Bible turned to Romans chapter 8, but it's Romans chapter 5. Should you, should you question... Should you find yourself questioning the idea that God, I don't want to say is okay, but he understands your imperfection and that he's able to deal with it and he's not angry with you when you're not perfect. This is what I'm after. That he understands our condition. He understands our struggle. And he is making us. He is creating us. He is transforming us if we will allow him and if we are in his presence. And when we're still not getting it right because of the way we project each other in the world, I think sometimes we put that on God and we go, oh, see, oh, oh, I messed that up. God's got to be so mad with me. Or, oh, I didn't get that. He must think I'm so stupid. If this doesn't set the foundation for how much God cares for you, even when you're not getting it right, I don't know if I can find anything else that can, because this is the beginning of it right here. Romans 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he, the writer of Romans goes on to flesh this out a little bit. He says, look, I know this doesn't really make sense because this is how we think. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Meaning, look, in this room right here, how many of us would be willing to die for somebody that, one, we don't know, but we think is a really good person? And as we look across the, 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 the grain of the world and, and the population of the world, we might be surprised at how many people would find who would say that, but 
still willing to lay down your life for someone else, even a good person. He says, you can hardly find anybody who will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one, one would dare even to die. I mean, if they were a really good person, you might go, yeah, you know what? I'd die for that person. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so let, let's, let's apply that a little bit farther to wrap this up. Remember, through all of these events, all of these examples, all of these um, miracles, the disciples still don't get it. Even after the women come and a couple of the guys run to the tomb and see that it's empty, the angel is there and says, what are you, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's alive. They still don't get it. And isn't, isn't God gracious? <laughs> he goes, oh, you still don't get it? Well, hang on a second. Let me show you this. Let me tell you this. Let me help you with that. <laughs> he messed it up. Don't worry. Listen, we'll get, it, we'll get it the next time. Just keep going. Keep trying. Keep chasing me. Keep following me. Because at the heart of who God is, at the very core of who God is, and it didn't end at the moment of your salvation. It is who he is, not who you are, that matters. The very core of God's being is that when we were still even raggedy, dirty, disobedient, unrepentant sinners, Christ died for us. So in verse 9, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, that's Jesus, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So here's the best news, is not only when we were sinners, as he said, enemies of God, did God love you so much that he sent Jesus to die for us that once we become sons and daughters of God, that love for us becomes so much more. <laughs> Man, that's good news. And then finally he says, and more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a big word, reconciliation. We still use it in our culture, reconcile. People can be reconciled. What does that mean? While we were enemies, God loved us so much, he died for us. And then when we become sons and daughters of God, his love abounds even so much more because we're his children. And isn't that fantastic? And the upshot of all of this is that once we were enemies and now, now we're friends. Our relationship with God has been brought back to a measure of perfection. It is reconciled. The balances at the bottom of the judgment sheet match, and the value of judgment is zero. Oh, that's good news. I hope you hear that good news. Whatever's going on in your life, now let, let me make a little caveat here. I was discussing this with someone uh, earlier this week. Don't mistake what I'm saying as a license to practice sin. Do, do followers of Jesus sin? 
We do. What we don't do is we don't, we don't go, when we're filled with the Spirit, we should not be people. And this is in 1 John. You can go look it up. It's pretty powerful stuff. But believers don't go out recklessly pursuing to be disobedient to God. In fact, other places in the book of Romans says that makes God's grace a mockery. And we should not do that. And I think there's pretty good evidence that and you've got to figure this out for yourself. A great, there's a pretty heavy suggestion that if you find yourself being a follower of Jesus who, who just pursues disobedience, pursues sin, pursue, pursues evilness, and your conscience is not being pricked by that and you're not being moved to get away from that, you, you should examine, are you really a follower of Christ? So don't mistake this reconciliation. Don't mistake this abounding love. Don't mistake this no longer being an enemy for being a license to do whatever you want. Because really what the Bible teaches, is, teaches us, like I hinted at at the beginning of this message, that we were no longer slaves to sin. It no longer masters us. We don't have to do what sin commands us to do. We become slaves to righteousness and we do what righteousness commands us to do with sometimes getting it wrong. And God goes, it's okay. I knew that was coming. We're good. So make sure you differentiate between the two and make sure you know where you are in relationship to God's gift of eternal life and salvation and abundant life and forgiveness. Because I'm here to tell you, friends, you can't consistently, intentionally, with willful malice, stick your finger in God's eye with sin and expect him to be forgiving about that because that's not repentance. Forgiveness is a response to repentance, and repentance is to change. There's room for... There's room there's room for error, not room for willful disobedience, practicing sin. All right, so I leave that with you. You've got to figure out where you are in that. If you, if you are unsure of where you are in that, you're looking at your life going, hmm, hmm, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not a follower. Hit me up. Pastor Tracy, C3AK.com. Message me. We'll talk. If you happen to be here, track me down. We'll chat. Once you have that worked out, rejoice in the gift of God's salvation and live a life. <laughs> I don't know. It's good news, man. It's really good news. Let me give you a blessing. We're going to close with a video this morning. I don't think this one will get flagged, but if it does, you know what to do. Thank you, Jan, for uh, running our social media business over there today. Thank you, Tech Crew, for all the work that you did back there this morning. Worship team, so awesome to be with you. And uh, look forward to next week. Pastor Jason will be bringing the message. It's going to be a great time together. So uh, be here. Join us here. Join us online. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you and may he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.